0: All right, welcome. We'll go ahead and get started. Uh, We have a lot to go over tonight, so I know that's a new thing, but we're going to work quick. We're going to work hard. We're going to get through as much as we can. This is our last one in this topic already. So let's pray and jump in. Father, we thank you so much that your spirit is here and your spirit works in and through your word. May we understand it clearly, may it change our perspective, may we see things and understand things from your point of view. Uh, So give us wisdom, give us insight, continue to transform us. Or into your image. We ask for all of those things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to kind of go back a little bit and cover some stuff we didn't get a chance to cover, and then we're going to shoot forward into the fourth session. So there was a whole section that we missed on elders and deacons. So I'm going to kind of quickly through pictures talk to you about elders. And then we'll do a quick tap on deacons and we'll move on to the next thing. Okay? So just find some white space. This isn't in your folder anywhere. Find some white space and you can draw this. So I've got a little dude in the middle this, in the middle of the board. That's our elder, okay. Uh, the main passages that talk about elders is 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. Again, this isn't really anywhere, but you, I mean you can find the, some of the references in Ephesians 4:11 through 16. From those passages we see several things that stick out. one. There's a certain level of character that an elder is supposed to have, and those things are kind of detailed in those chapters. Uh, One of the big overarching things is is this idea of being above reproach. Now, above reproach can mean so much, like no human being could be qualified if you actually took above reproach to every single detail. So above reproach is kind of, we would say, the umbrella, and then the details of what God considers above reproach are listed underneath that. There needs to be some level of competency like an elder is required to be able to teach, for example. In 1 Timothy 3.2, it says the elder must be able to teach. So there's some level of able, being able to fulfill the role they've been called to do. Uh, chemistry, so I struggled with this one for a while. Chemistry is the concept that not every elder fits the same way in every church, okay? So if we had someone who had all the character and had competency, but they said, we have no interest in reaching the city, they maybe wouldn't be a good fit for our church. Okay, so there's, there is a, there's an aspect that the whole church is going this way and that person would like to go that way. Maybe it's just not a good fit. That just creates disaster. I've seen that before. That's not a great thing. And then what I'm gonna do here in the middle of the board is talk about the roles of an elder. Back in our Jesus study, we talked about a couple things. So I'm gonna put Jesus at the top. Ultimately, this is his church. He died for it. Uh, He's the one who's redeeming it. And one day we are betrothed to him. So he is the church. So even though an elder is called like a leader in the church, he's really just a shepherd under the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd and every pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, all those words are interchangeable in the New Testament, serve at the pleasure of Jesus and under the authority of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus was called a prophet a priest and a king. Those are the roles that Jesus played and still plays, prophet, priest, and king. And keep that in the back of your mind. So for the elder, there's two primary things he's called to do. These things he can't get wrong. One, he's called to plead before God on behalf of the people. He's to plead before God. Can you see this? Plead before God on behalf of the people. In other words, he's called to pray for the people. Okay, so the elder is called to plead and pray for the people who are under his care. They're also, he's also, if these are the people down here, he's called to plead with the people on behalf of God. In other words, he's called to teach and preach God's word. So there's the two main things. He's called to plead before God on behalf of the people, he's called to pray, and he's called to teach God's word. If you remember in Acts chapter six, there was a point there where the apostles and the teachers got so involved in some of the details of helping widows and helping people who are hurting and dealing with tables, that they said, we can no longer pray and preach. Therefore we need some help because God set us aside to pray and to preach because those are the two major things. Now, so pray and preach are, are huge. Also, I want you to connect this. So I'm gonna draw a triangle here. This triangle is, is what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is modeling for the elder. So again, the elder serves at the pleasure and under the authority of Jesus. Jesus cares for the elder. He feeds the elder and he leads the elder. So he does three things. He cares, he feeds, and he leads. Why? Because Jesus functions for the elder as as a priest, as a prophet, and as a king. He's functioning in those ways. The priestly role is a role of caring, shepherding, loving. The prophetic role is a role of teaching, educating, pushing, calling out truth from error. The kingly role is the role of leading, providing direction and vision. The Lord is doing that for the leaders of God's church. And then the leaders of God's church are called to do the same thing for God's people. The elder is called to care for God's people. The elder is called to feed God's people. The elder is called to lead God's people. The elder to the best of his ability or best of their ability, because every time you see it in scriptures, elders, when it talks about putting leaders into place within the church, just notice, it's always describing elders who are being put into place. So the elders are called to care, feed, and lead. So the elders are called to function as, as priests, prophets, and kings. Okay, So they're not doing anything. They're not making up something. As they follow Jesus, and as they're cared for, and Jesus cares for them, they're called to care for the people in the same way. Because there's an S there, we have to recognize this. There's also relationships that the elders have with the other relationship, with the other elders. In scripture, you really don't people see, you don't really see people serving alone. They're serving in teams. In a team, you have accountability. In a team, you have people who can fill in for your weaknesses. For example, would you shut that door real quick for us? Um, <clears throat> Even here, so when you look at an individual, there aren't many elders or pastors who have the ability to do all these equally. Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. We are oftentimes lacking in some of these things. So, like, I enjoy teaching. I'm happy feeding people. You take me and put me into a hospital situation, I'm not so good. I'm just not. Like, I can do it, but I'm not so good. Like, I'd rather teach for three hours than be in the hospital for three minutes. Okay, so that's kind of where I am. It doesn't mean I don't love people. I just would rather love people this way than that way. Uh, I also enjoyed the leading part. I love casting vision, thinking strategically, and helping there. Now, I get to oversee Richard Thompson and Ted Tanzi. You call me, Mike, i in the hospital. Great, I'll send Ted, like that's what I do. Does that make sense? So sometimes as a team, We realize where we're stronger and we realize where we're weaker. And we make sure as a team of pastors, we have those who are specializing in care, those who are specializing in teaching and leading and preaching and those who specialize in direction setting and strategic planning and helping us set where we're supposed to go. So that's why we have elders is because there's no one who perfectly reflects Jesus. So we're always in need of help in these three different areas. Okay, that's kind of cool, huh? So presently, we don't really have a track of training elders at Bible Center. In most churches, like okay, I'm not gonna say most. In some churches, like there's an actual track. Like we want you to learn these things, understand these things, and then we talk about maybe preparing you and take you through a process of becoming an elder. We're not there yet here, so we're working on it. And it's possible that someone is working really hard on it, and it might look something like this. Okay, so. <clears throat> So in the background these are some of the things their conversations that we're having that will go through the elders to help determine how to help future elders be really ready for the role. Because if you don't have this in the back of your mind, it's really hard to know if you've been called to be an elder. And then when you are an elder, you're surprised with what you all of a sudden have to do. Okay? Any quick questions on this? Are elders always men? I would say I don't want to talk- Biblically, I would lean towards it looks to me like yes. The conversation of deacons is a different question, but we're not going to go there tonight. Uh, But let's talk about deacons for one second without bringing that particular topic up. So deacons, which I'm putting here at the bottom of the board, they have almost all the same character quality expectations. The major difference is the competency piece. Deacons are not required to be able to teach. Okay? Elders, according to 1 Timothy 3.2, are required to teach. Deacons are not required to be able to teach. So their main role is they serve, and they do all the detail things to make it possible to free up those who are called to teach and to pray to be able to do that more and more and more. Uh, Matt likes saying they're the shock absorbers to the church, and in many ways they are. You take them out of the church, you're not going to get much teaching anymore, because I'm busy emptying trash cans and you know, fluffing all your seats for you. You're doing all those really important things. So, <clears throat> not that that's what deacons do, but like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but deacons also, we should have, want to have chemistry and they need to understand what their role is. There has been some history within the church where, where we think that deacons are just in charge of money. Well, it's more than that. I mean, they can be in charge of money, but that's not required. But they're in charge of just making sure everything's functioning and flowing so we can move the ministry forward. Okay? So there's a 10-minute quick lesson on elders and deacons. Let's go ahead and move to the section four. So that discussion came out of our larger discussion of the church universal. Tonight we're going to talk about the church local. So there's the capital C universal church and the, there's the lowercase. local church. There's a capital K kingdom and there's the lower K. God's little examples of kingdoms, those being his little churches. And one of the things we have to do is we have to identify our, you'll like this word, ecclesiastical minimums. So if I grabbed all of you, And on a Sunday morning, I took you and dropped you into a living room somewhere on the west side. And there were 20 or 30 believers hanging out and meeting together. I would want you to be able to identify whether or not they are a functioning church or just a good group of Christians who have a fun fellowship. Because those are different. A church and a fellowship are not the same thing. There are some distinctives. There are some minimum expectations that have to be there to be the church. There's also bells and whistles that we add to the church that are above and beyond what we need to be to be the church. So if there was a day where, say, we wanted to start a small congregation over in Canal City or Clendenin, you pick, doesn't matter where, and then we told the small group who wanted to start the church, when you start your church, you also have to start a counseling center. And you can't start your church until you have a fully staffed, Children's ministry. How would that go? Like, there's no success. There's no chance. So we've pretty much shackled them with expectations that are impossible. We've gone above and beyond the minimums. Okay. Now, those are all good things, but they're not necessarily necessarily the core, the core things and the necessary things. So what we have here at the beginning of page 24 is what we would consider like the necessary elements that need to be there for a church to be considered a church. And if we can identify these, all of a sudden we're in a position to know what kind of team we would need to raise up and what the expectations for that team would be to actually be able to start something someday somewhere, if God would so move us to do so. And they neatly fall into three categories, worship, belong, and serve. How about that? All right, let's read through them and then we're going to dissect them. Worship. We gather together under the preaching and singing of God's word, and respond with giving, prayer, and participating in the ordinances. Belong. We live life together in smaller environments as the church throughout the week, caring and praying for one another in ever-expanding circles, faithfully making disciples. Serve. Everyone serves. The congregation is elder-led and served, while each believer is using their spiritual gifts, their skills, their resources for the growth and maturity of the church as it accomplishes its mission of saturating the world with the gospel. Let's start with worship. So I put some stuff in bold. Those would be the things that we look at. We gather together under the preaching and singing of God's word and respond with giving, prayer, participating in the ordinances. Okay, so the church gathers to meet together just like we see in Acts chapter 2 Like, right at the birth of the church, it says they gather in the temple for the apostles' teaching. Um, In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, don't give up on the assembling together, like, do it with regularity. So there's just this thing where we assemble together. We get together. Um, Why? For the preaching of the word is one of the main reasons. A church centers itself around the word and gathers together to hear the word being preached and taught. Jesus calls us to do all that he commanded. If that's the case, we're never gonna to get to the point where we no longer need to hear the Word. Like none of us get to the point where we've got it all down and we're doing all of it, okay? So we never outgrow the Word of God. It always remains center for us. Two, here's an interesting point. To properly understand the Bible, we've got to know what the overarching themes are of the Bible or else when we get into the details of the Bible, we'll misunderstand them. There's a couple of you in this room who I've done this with before. So maybe you let other people get a shot at this first. Um, What would you say, if you're thinking from cover to cover of the Bible, or you're thinking about each book of the Bible, what are some of the themes that kind of stick out to you that you see from cover to cover? This is a 50,000 foot look at the Bible. What are the major themes that stick out to you? Redemption. Good, look at Dan. So I'm gonna say there's four. One of them is the plan of redemption. From the very beginning to the very end, we're seeing the plan of redemption worked out. Revelations about the finalization of redemption that looks like restoration and renewal. What else? Glory God. Glory, good. Creation. So I would put creation, I would put creation in another category. So what's gonna happen is you're gonna throw out some things and those things are gonna get swallowed up by bigger things. Who created? Why did they create? What was the purpose of creating? So I'm going bigger. I'm going that direction. People are perfect. Good. So Jesus had to die for him. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign. What else is he? He's infallible. He's infallible? What else is he? Creator. He's creator. What else is he? Omnipotent. Okay, so so, so what are we talking about right now? The Paralympic the character of God, good. Now, the way I'm gonna say this is the progressive revelation of the character and attributes of God. You don't get everything all at once. If you only read the book of Revelation, or if you only lived during the time of, I'm sorry, if you only read the book of Genesis, When he lived during the book of Genesis, you wouldn't know as much as the people that lived during the time of the book of Numbers. The people who live right now today know a lot more about who God is than the people who lived before the whole Bible was completed. So God is slowly revealing more and more of who he is over time. Why? Because he's infinite or finite, and he would would crush us with all that knowledge. So he lets it out little bit by little bit. In fact, this Bible is only this big I would imagine when we die and go to heaven and see him face to face, we still have more to learn. Like we're not done. So, the progressive revelation of God's character and attributes, the plan of redemption, glory. This one's really obvious once I write it. What's the fourth one? What is the whole Old Testament pointing to? It was the whole New Testament pointing back to. Good job. Okay. And I would say all of these major things are are interconnected with one another. The character of God, the plan of redemption, Jesus himself, and the glory of God are all interconnected. Jesus is the centerpiece of the plan of redemption. God revealed himself ultimately and most fully through the person of Jesus. Jesus came so that he would bring glory to the Father. The Father seeks to bring glory to the Son. Okay, So all these things are interconnected to one another. Jesus himself says, when Moses was speaking, when the prophets were speaking, they were talking about me. Okay, so the Old Testament is talking about Jesus. In the New Testament, they're all talking about the Jesus who came. Old Testament, Jesus is coming. New Testament, hey, he came. This is how when, him, when he came, it changed everything. So I would say these are the major themes that override and oversee everything else that was written. I would argue that you could go to any book in the Bible, if you spend enough time, you would see how each one of these are played out in that book of the Bible. Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, like those are worked out in those books. You see them in those books, sometimes very clearly, sometimes more in the background, but they're rumbling everywhere. They're rumbling everywhere. So, when you know these themes and these are in the back of your mind, it makes it easier to go into some details, the life of Samson, um, what's going on in the book of Joshua. Like those details make more sense in light of God taking those details to shed light on these things. So when it comes to preaching, which is the context of why we started this conversation, when it comes to preaching, the pastor sometimes has to preach big, topical. He has to say, this is a theme that runs from here to here and go really high. So sometimes you have to preach on a 50,000 foot level. Sometimes you got to go really detailed and go to Leviticus and look at how the tabernacle was put together and why. Because there's beauty in those details. Those details point to these things. So you have to go deep and you have to go high. So sometimes you're 10 feet off the ground, sometimes you're 50,000 feet off the ground. So, if a preacher only ever teaches verse by verse, you might miss these. If a preacher only preaches these, you might miss some of the beauty of the details when you go verse by verse. So you're going to notice here, sometimes we do big themes, sometimes we go verse by verse. Going back and forth helps keep the entire book in the frame of reference and how we understand it to know it and interpret it correctly. Okay? I don't know if you ever thought about that before, but like, so that's called content flow. So between the core classes, the preaching, and everything else we teach, we're always thinking through, are we going big and then are we going small, are we going big and then are we going small? Okay? So we're, we actually think about that. So it's not by accident, like we're trying to make sure we really understand God's Word as well as we possibly can in the way and the order that we teach things. So and that's the next point, therefore to understand the whole, at times it's helpful to preach topics or themes that run throughout the Bible. It's also important to take time to work through some of the details of a particular book over time. Those are considered exegetical sermons. If a church ever drifts, it must, it must, it must course correct and recenter itself around God's Word. So, we talk here about the church coming together around God's Word, but the church also scatters throughout the week. The church scatters throughout the week, but continues to be the church wherever they are, living in God's word and living out God's word together in their homes, in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their places of work, just like the church did in Acts. So yes, the church gets together. Let's, um, let's say here, on Sundays, the church gets together. Here's what we do. We oftentimes think, oftentimes think in terms of silos. So Sunday, church day. Monday, sometimes the first thing I think about is, is work or my career. For some people, there's a education thing going on in their life, like they're thinking about going to school, or their kids going to school, or their grandkids going to school, that's another area of our life. Another area might be our hobbies. Another area might be our marriages, or relationships, or friends. There's all these different areas. Another area might be our health, okay? Working out, staying in shape, eating well. So the way we often think is there's these silos in our life and each one is independent of the other. From the very beginning, from the birth of the church, this is what he wanted to communicate because in Acts chapter two, verse 46, he says, you gather together in the temples, but then you also meet together and break bread in homes. The church needs to look like this. This is the church, okay? So church is not a silo Church encompasses everything. No matter where you are, you're still the church. The church is people. The church isn't the building. The church is the people. The church isn't the building. So on Monday morning, you're still the church. On Tuesday, when you go work out, you're still the church. When you hang out with your family on Thursday night, you're still the church. So you wanna be thinking you're always the church. So we're always doing the work of the church. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's your whole life, you are the church. That's just a different way of thinking. Okay? Because we gather, but then we scatter, but we're always the church. Okay? Next page. So we talked about preaching God's word. We would also say we are called to sing God's word. So the book of Psalm has psalms in it, and they function as a worship hymnal, and a prayer guide for the Old Testament people, which is really interesting because they're words from people to God, but God gave them the words to speak back to him. <laughs> Isn't that weird? But think about it, even with our kids, like, so you, you hand your child a, a lollipop and your child grabs it and runs away. Hey, no, 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 come back here. When I hand you a lollipop, you say, thank you, daddy. Oh, sorry. Thank you, daddy. Then he grabs it and runs away. Okay. So what I just did there is I taught my child how to t- properly talk to me, That's what the Psalms do. The Psalms teach us how to properly talk to our Father. So we need them. And when we pray the Psalms or we sing the Psalms, we're singing God's words back to God in an appropriate way. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and admonishing one another with Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So there's two things happening here. Catch this. By singing, we're admonishing one another, but we're also expressing thankfulness to God. So when we worship and we're singing God's words, or when we're worshiping and singing truths found in God's words, everyone around us benefits. And we're showing thankfulness, adoration, and praise to God. Both things happen. So singing God's word, grows us, and it brings glory to God. So seeing God's word brings growth and glory. Both things are happening. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the most important thing about the songs that you choose are the lyrics to the songs, not necessarily the style of the music that's being played. Sometimes you get more focused on the style than the words. I would suggest the early church and the church forever needs to be more focused on the words than the style. Like it or not, my preference is, I prefer like Christian heavy metal. I just do, that's my preference. That's my style. (laughs) So when I get in the car, no one ever wants, I never turn it on when I'm with anybody else, no one else likes it. Um, it's, (laughs) It's the way, so like some like I have Psalm 69, heavy metal. I've got Psalm 73, heavy, like I've got Psalms in heavy metal. You can take those same same exact lyrics, and you can do them on an organ, you can do them with some light drums and acoustic guitar, you can do them lightly with a, a bass and electric guitar, or you can take a microphone, scream as loud as you can, and beat the drums as loud as you can, and they're the same words every time. I would prefer to scream them, and perhaps you would prefer to do something else, but the most important thing are the words. We don't always get our preference, I'm just aware. I'm not going to get that downstairs or anywhere else, so I'm going to get it in my car. And I just... and I don't... What was that over there? You never know. You never know. So uh, I've I've been in a mosh pit or two. Okay. So, what do you suppose happens when the songs that we choose start to drift away from having the same content in the songs as the content we have in Scripture? What happens? Confusion. Confusion. Good. What else? I guess we let worldly desires and such start to creep in. Good. We move, move away from the Lord. So, if it's not God's words or teaching God's words or presenting God's words, it's presenting something else, right? right. Okay. So, something secular that isn't necessarily from God. Now the moment that we stray too much from God's words, then it's no longer growth and glory, it's just, it's not those two things. It's not necessarily bringing God glory, it's not necessarily changing us in any way. So we have to keep ourselves centered around that to be word-led people. All right, let's jump into giving. That's a fun one. In the Old Testament, giving is interesting. Like if you really take some time and study it, it maybe isn't what you think it is. In the Old Testament, tithing was a part of their law and it was an expectation. So nowadays, you know, we pray and we pass a basket and hopefully people put something in. That's not the way it was in the Old Testament. Like it's a law, a law. Like you do it or you are then made, like it's a law. So it's different in the New Testament than the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, a tithe was considered 10%. But when you... Look at all the additional things they're called to give above and beyond their 10%. There's additional grain offerings. There's seven-year offerings. There's 70-year offerings, the year of Jubilee. When you add all those things together, the average Israelite will have given 24% of everything they've made to the Lord. Not 10%, 24%. So just as a reference point, I'm not saying it's a bad one. As a reference point, when we say tithe, we're referring to the Old Testament, they gave 24%. I'm not saying you need to give 24%, I'm just saying when we're thinking about it, like they gave 24%. Numbers 18.21 says this, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. So even in the Old Testament, some aspect of this was, this is how you made sure you could afford to have people to take care of you spiritually. That's part of it. Proverbs 3.9 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. First fruits, how often at the end of the month do we look and say, well, what do I have left that I can kind of give to God? It's so much, it's just our tendency. Like tithing can oftentimes be an afterthought than the first thought. And sometimes we give based upon what we have left over rather than giving him the first and the best of what we have. So here, the heart issue is give him the best, give him the first fruits, okay? I'm not saying that's easy to do, okay? I'm not saying it's easy for me to do. Like, that's the call here, is I want to give you my best, not my leftovers. He gave us his best, his only son. Um, So, it seems reasonable. It's just easy to forget. Uh, You can read those verses on your own. Let's go to 26. In the New Testament, no specific tithe is actually mentioned. Jesus seems to switch the transition, or he seems to switch the focus to the heart of the giver, more than a specific percentage by the giver, okay? So if 10% slash 24% was the expectation in the Old Testament, the expectation is that you're doing something wholeheartedly in the New Testament, okay? On average, the American average right now is like 1.5 to 2%. The average church attender gives 1.5 to 2%, okay? That might even be members, not even just attenders. and Bible Center tends to run about the same as the national average. So just, I'm just letting you know. Like, so 10%, for a lot of people, they don't even get close to that. Um, and I have, have any idea how much any of you give? I don't get to, we don't see stuff like that and I don't wanna ever see stuff like that, but like, it usually tends to be really small. Matthew 6, one through four says this. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you give. So, if you were thinking about bringing a trumpet, to sound it before you put your money into the basket, (laughs) leave your trumpet at home, that's what it's saying. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So that they may be honored by men. They want people to see them. They want to be honored by men. Truly, I I say to you, they already have their full reward. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that in your giving, you will be in secret. And your father, he's the one who sees what you're doing, and he's the one that will reward you. For those who do it to get the attention of men, you've already gotten your reward. Those who do it without being seen, you have something still waiting for you, and it comes from God rather than from men. So that's, that's a good concept. Like the goal isn't for people to see how much you've given, the goal is just to give generously. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It's a, it's a you and the Lord thing, okay? Uh, Mark 12, 41 through 44, Jesus and some of the disciples are sitting there watching people give, and some individuals roll up, you know, in the fanciest robes of the day, togas that you and I would be jealous of, and uh, they're dropping some cash in, some decent cash, and after them, a widow rolls up, barely, is surviving, and she puts what Jesus says is pretty much all that she has in. And he says, that's the woman who walked out of here with her sins forgiven. Okay, we know that sins being forgiven aren't based on how much you give. That was a moment in time where Jesus was using that as an example. But like, he honors the woman. So it wasn't how much you gave. It was the heart with which the person gave. Okay? Um, 2 Corinthians 8.2. This is Paul. Talking to the Corinthians, he says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up, so extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So here's a group of people who are going through trials, they're struggling financially. they saw an opportunity to give something to Paul to help another church. It says they went out of their way to be as generous as they possibly could. Uh, So this is very un-American, this concept of giving like this, Uh, but this is a hard thing, and all of us just need to take it before the Lord and think about it. It's just part part of the struggle of growing in Christ. Matthew 6, 21, the blue verse down there, a little bit farther on the page, says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also where you put your resources, where you put your time, where you put your effort, that becomes the thing that you love the most. It becomes your, your treasure. So if, if someone who didn't really know you had the chance to look at all your bank records and your checkbook and everything about you financially, would they walk up to you and say, oh my goodness, clearly you love Jesus, you'd have those back? You know, that's kind of, that's a good question. You know the way we use our resources and the way we give things away. Does it clearly communicate where our treasure is? Is it Him? Okay, So it's a good question to always be asking ourselves. So in the New Testament, it isn't so much 10 percent. I think the standard, maybe not the number, but the standard actually goes up. He says it's not just a, it's not a law thing. It's a heart thing. Where are you at? Um, are you willing to give? generously, even when you haven't been given too generously. Um, page 27 is all about prayer. Now down at the bottom, it points to a resource that we already have where I taught about prayer for like, for about like three hours. So I'm not gonna spend much time here because you can go and click on that and you can listen to it again and you'll hear lots about prayer. Um, so we're going to kind of jump over the first section and jump to the section where it says, our hope is that. Okay. So The first section says we should be praying, okay, I can summarize all those things with we should be praying. So our hope is this, is that prayer fills our Sunday morning services. Our hope is that prayer is a part of every group and small gathering, that prayer is being made by each believer in the church for one another, for the church, and for the city. Our hope is that prayer is increasing in every circle within the church. Our hope is that each believer is calling other believers to join them in prayer. When you feel called to pray, and you have a sense and a desire to do so, that's a good time to grab someone else to pray with you. Our hope is that a commitment is being made to ask God for huge things, and that prayer is and becomes the driving force behind our mission, behind multiplication, behind the mobilization of the saints across the valley. I feel like at Bible center, God's setting us up for some really amazing things. In terms of some of our goals and the visions that I fe- vision they feel like God's giving us to really go after the city, seeing cities saturated with with the gospel, that's a huge thing. Nothing like that is ever 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 accomplished without a movement of prayer behind it. Okay, God could do it without prayer, but you just see Him consistently throughout history and even in Scripture, in the Book of Acts, God tends to work in and through prayer. So I would say right now one of our biggest weaknesses isn't a lack of direction. It isn't a lack of clarity. It isn't a lack of values and direction. It's, I think we still need to be praying more. Here's, and here's what I'm praying for, and here's what I'm hoping for. When prayer is pushed from the top down, oftentimes it's done out of obedience, or it's done in response to what you're being told to do. Movements of prayer historically usually come from the bottom up, not from the top down. It comes from people who are ignited by God and given a passion to start to pray and they grab other people and they start to pray together. Little prayer groups start forming and what they do is they pray. Not talk, I mean, you can talk about how you're doing, but like they actually get together and they get on their knees and they spend the bulk of the time actually talking to God and beseeching Him for mission, for souls for change, for the gospel to go forward, for it to be communicated clearly, for it to be heard, for the baptismal to be filled every Sunday. They start praying for those things. So the answer isn't saying, hey, every Wednesday night for 30 minutes, you're going to give your heart to God in prayer. When we do that, a certain number of people who come to everything will come. Everyone needs to buy into it. Everyone needs to buy into praying. Okay? So pray that God ignites you. I'm praying the same. Okay? Okay. There's a ground up movement that God begins to build and begins to swell here. When that happens, then I'm gonna feel like, all right, maybe God is actually moving us in that direction. Maybe God is actually moving us in that direction. So I'm, it's one of those things, it's one of those breezes I'm still kind of waiting to feel. I feel like I have felt several, some awesome things that God's starting to do. That's one I'm still kind of waiting for. Um, but if God's gonna work in and through us, he will do that. This is a God thing. You can't manufacture a prayer movement. You cannot manufacture a prayer movement. It doesn't work that way. God's Spirit needs to push us. Let's go to page 28. Ordinances. So, Jesus has given the church two ordinances, prayer and baptism. Somebody asked me after the last class, this was a good question, he asked me, Do we receive grace when we participate in the ordinances? Do we receive grace when we participate in the ordinances? What would be your answer to that? Okay, any other answers? Yes, because we have grace all the time. So did you receive more grace? You have a closer connection. Okay, so it affects you relationally. But did you receive more grace? Mm-hmm. So here's the way, historically, the church. A now. Of grace. What's that? Different things are means of grace. So it's a means of grace. So. Like prayer and Bible study and preaching. Trudy, mm-hmm. I'm never, ever going to correct you. Okay? <laughs> so I'm just not. Um, <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm saying that, I, what I have in my mind is like a. Like a historical perspective on it. On, in a historical perspective, there's been centuries where the church was dominated by this kind of thinking. Jesus died on the cross. We're going to say that's a church, even though it looks terrible. OK? And then here's a person. OK. There was periods of time where the church did this. Jesus died on the cross, and he gave grace to the church to dispense to the people. okay? And the way the church would dispense the people is through sacraments or the ordinances, okay? So this point of view is that Jesus died, gave grace to the church, and the church decides what portion of grace you receive by participation in communion, baptism, there's other sacraments, marriage, having children, I mean, all those things, okay? So for a long time, this is how the church functioned, okay? And we would say this was wrong, okay? So, so when I meant means of grace is kind of what was in my head. So historically, this was like you're receiving grace, like the grace that you need to be saved kind of grace. No, that's not what I I know that's not what you meant, Trudy. <laughs> okay, so what happens in this situation is then you've got, let's see if I can draw this, you've got scales, all right? And then you've got sin landing here, and then you're trying to make sure that you are doing enough sacraments, so you have enough grace landing here to even out the scales. That's kind of how it worked back then. Okay? This would be kind of the way the Catholic Church views grace, is this way. All right, So depending on the moment of your death, depending where the scales land, it was either hell, purgatory, or heaven— purgatory, then you would burn off the extra ones. It's like you got a little extra grace on this side. That's, I'm telling you, that's, that's it. And then you then got to move on to, to heaven. Now, let's change it to how I think sacraments really work. We'll just say this is you. Okay, so a person or for you. Jesus Christ died, and Jesus Christ gives his grace to you. You have a direct relationship with Jesus and then you and I the people celebrate that in the church so the lines just went in a very different direction didn't they so Christ didn't die give grace to the church and the grace dispenses church Dis- dispenses grace Christ died on the cross and when you place your faith in him he gives you grace enough to save you from every sin you have are or will ever commit, and then you celebrate the beauty of that gospel in the church. Okay, So if you have a friend who sees it the other way, draw this. I swear, it helps them so much. Like This is like an eye-opener. Oh, wait, I have a direct relationship with Jesus? He actually is the one who gives me grace? I'm not dependent upon the church organization and the powers that be to give me grace? This is revolutionary for someone who's never seen it this way. So keep that one in the back of your pocket. Or the back of your head and in your back pocket, uh, you'll use it someday. Does that make sense? That's just a really easy way of seeing the difference between the two points of view. Church is a place where we celebrate grace. We're not given salvific grace. All right, page 28. So as Christians have entered into a covenant with the Lord, covenant relationships have both legal and relational aspects. A covenant is a relationship with a given set of commitments and expectations like a marriage. So in both of these sacraments, and we can can use that word, or both of these ordinances, they remind us of our covenant, okay? Baptism. Let's have fun with baptism for a second. There's a lot of different points of view on baptism, and even within the Protestant church, there's multiple ways that people view baptism and do baptism, how they view baptism and do baptism. Now, let's distinguish some things. Our level one, highest level of belief, is that we are saved by grace through faith, right? This is the kind of thing that if somebody says, puts a gun to your head and says, deny that you were saved by Jesus through grace, by grace through faith, you say, pull the trigger. Like that's, that you, there's, that's a hill that you die on, okay? That's, we believe that. It's a level one belief. It's a core belief. It's a theological essential to who we are. Well, let's go down a level. I don't always want you to say pull the trigger, okay? <laughs> Only here would you say that. This next one, I would not suggest you pull the trigger. So, <laughs> like we need you to fight another day. So here's this. You've got credo-baptism and paedo-baptism. So there's two different categories here. Credo means means faith, it means belief. So this concept is, first you place your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then your baptism. So faith comes first, baptism comes second. That's credo-baptism. The other side, the other point of view is paedo-baptism. Their point of view is, if you're born into a Christian family, that's enough. You get baptized then as an infant. Pato is baptism of infants, children baptism, feels like Christmas. Um, so that's, that's Pato baptism. Now in terms of the points of view of where that comes from, I think most of you know where this comes from, okay? This side is there's this, there's this connection between the Old Testament people and circumcision, which was a symbol of being the part of the people of God, and New Testament believers. And baptism, they view baptism as being an ex- a continuation of this concept of circumcision. Okay, you didn't have to believe in God or trust God to be circumcised. You just need to be born as a person of God in the people of God. So their point of view is that baptism works more like that. It's a symbol that you are born into a family that declares and recognizes that they're a part of the new covenant people. So from my point of view, that that is like too interconnected like I don't think like so here's what's happening is the paedo-baptist is viewing baptism kinda like their last name okay so my last name is Graham so like just because I was born to parents who believe I get to I get to receive it because it's a symbol of the family that I'm associated with credo-baptism is more like my wedding ring Do you see the difference the wedding ring has nothing to do with where I was born or who I was born to, the wedding ring has to do with me saying, I'm willing to commit. I am personally entering into this covenant relationship. So from their point of view, it's more of a, you were born into the right family at the right time, therefore you get to receive baptism. Here, it's, I chose to be baptized because in the grace of God, I chose Christ. This is a decision, so it comes after the decision. This is just by association. Okay, you see the difference? So some of you might be saying, well, who would believe this? Why would you believe this? There are brilliant people who we respect, who write books that we read, who land here. And if you spent time with them, and I invited one of them in here, and you saw us discuss it, I'm not sure who you would think would win that conversation because they will use scripture, okay? And they will say that we in Israel are very, very connected. And that we are more connected to that concept than this concept. Now, I don't agree with that, but like, in other words, we can look at some of these people, most of them, and say, you're still brothers and sisters if you place your faith in Christ. If someone puts a gun to your head, don't say pull the trigger with this. Okay? I wouldn't. It's just that you don't need to die over this. You can disagree, but don't die. Okay? How about that? Now... Here would be a verse that they would hold that we would just have two points of view on. Like, this verse kind of bridges the two two concepts. In Acts, at least in one occasion, maybe two, it says they believed and the entire household was baptized. And they believed and the entire household was baptized. Well, this side is going to say, of course there was probably some children there. And it says they were baptized. Duh okay, paedo-baptism. Now, the other side would say, it doesn't say if there were children, and if there were children, they probably placed their faith in Christ, and then they were baptized. Duh. So, like, but both arguments are being made out of silence, because on neither side does the Bible actually speak to what, which part is true, which point is true, which situation was actually what was occurring. So, that argument just lands in the middle, and no one gets, no one gets to win on that argument and no one has to lose on that argument. It's it's an argument out of silence. Okay, so level three. If you buy into Credo, which we do here, there's a couple of different options in terms of methods. There's immersion and there is sprinkling. Okay, so here I would say you die for it. Here I think we can disagree over it. Here is more an area where we just kind of can debate over it, okay? I just made that up, that's really good. So, you <laughs> die, debate, disagree. Is that what it is? No, no. Ah. okay. Discuss. We don't want to lose that one, right? Now you're stuck hearing that one for years, so I'll use that one over and over again. <clears throat> so, when it comes to immersion and sprinkling, for example, when Jesus was baptized, it says he went down into the water and then was baptized. So just from a very practical point of view, it seems weird for me for him to go all the way down into the water and get soaking wet from here down and then just have someone pour some water on his head. <laughs> okay? Now, that's not, uh, that's not a good argument, that's not a good, but that just makes sense to me. Like, if you're going to get all wet, just stand out here and I'll just get some water. Say, if you're going in the water, I'll just get some water out and I'll pour it on you. Like, that just practically seems to make more sense to me. Um, also... Romans chapter six has this picture at the beginning where it says we were buried with Christ and we were raised with him to the newness, the newness of life. In fact, when we oftentimes pull people out, we'll say raised in the newness of life. So Romans six has that picture. And I think this does a better job of picturing that than this does. There's no water in Romans six. There is no H, even in the Greek, no H2O found in Romans six, none. So it's all symbolism. And we would say, that's a good picture of it, but there's no water there. So what I'm saying there is we're inferring that argument. It's not clearly stated. This person says, well, you can also go to verses that say, we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been cleansed by the Word of God. And they're saying, pouring it over your head is a better picture of being washed, clean. Okay, I mean, there's no water there either, but all I'm saying is, like... They have a point of view. And they're doing the same things with verses that we're doing. Okay? So I think we can debate these things. But I also think we can have peace with one another here. There's no reason why we can't call each other brother and sister and have a little bit of a disagreement here. Okay? If you spend time with the, with the people who've really thought through this, they're throwing verses at you. And you're throwing verses back. I mean, it's tennis. You're playing theological tennis. Um, and maybe one side wins, but there's really close. Okay? You might be going to overtime. So, again, we lean here, and I'm good with leaning here. This just makes more sense to me. And I'm happy to have that debate, but there's no reason to divide over that. There's no reason to divide over that. That was another D. <laughs> I'll, work, I'll work that in some, I'll work that in later. Okay. Any questions about that? Any questions? Do you, do you put that level three, at debate or disagree? I, I just put it in a debate. If you put it in a debate, then or, how do you justify uh, church membership based on what? you do? Yep. You know, that's yeah, that's hard, hard isn't it? it? That's hard, isn't it? You lean that way, and you said that. Yeah. So, you know, how? a great question. A that's a great <laughs> off-mic question. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, doesn't That's what mm-hmm. I was referring to as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's yeah. mm-hmm. Why is it a requirement of membership if it's not necessarily required of Christ? It's, it's an act of obedience. Well, you guys are asking great questions. <laughs> and people would want to do not it. You do that. I. It's a great off mic discussion. <laughs> great debate. Great debate. Um, but no, those are the types of questions that we have to ask. We have to ask those. Okay? So, in the doctoral statement, And we're actually working on the doctoral statement right now. What we're trying to do in the doctoral statement is we're trying to say where are there level two and level three things that have landed that get confused with level one things? And where are we missing level one things we just never said? Like there's lots of them. Like there's certain things that are level one beliefs that we should die for that didn't even make it into our our existing doctrinal statement. So we're making sure we put all those in. And there's a couple of things where we're debating as elders, does this need to be at the level of Jesus is God, is sprinkling or immersion at the same level of Jesus rose from the dead? I would say no, but when they're put beside each other and they have perceivably the same level of authority, then it gets confusing. So this is one of the things we're working on, okay? And it's not done yet, okay? But there'll be a day when we're gonna have those discussions. In fact, we're talking through how to start rolling it out, having discussions about it. But with the elders, this has been a really good thing to look at, what have we bought into as being super important. that Then when you look at scripture, it doesn't seem nearly as important. Like we've made it important. Maybe he didn't make it important. So that's a conversation that we're starting to have more and more and more. And they're really good. And I'm super... World worthy, and not word worthy. world worthy versus word worthy. Very nice. Okay. Um, so when it comes to the Lord's Supper... And there was a whole sermon that was done on this not that long ago. There's three major things that are happening. So that while participating section says, while participating in the Lord's Supper, we are to do a couple things. One, we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We're called to remember. We're also called to examine. And that examining piece is examining where our heart is in relationship with God. And also talks about in relationship with one another. If we have broken relationships and we need to reconcile, we're called to do that. Like, Lord's Supper reminds us that God's still working in our heart now. He didn't just die for me and save me. He's also transforming me. That process of transformation takes place and is communicated through this idea of being examined and examining ourselves. And the last one is we celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming back. He says we keep doing it until he comes back. So what's beautiful, so beautiful about the Lord's Supper, is reminds us that the work of the gospel is past, is present, and is future. He died on the cross for us, and when we said yes to Jesus, it changed everything. But that same gospel that saved us is the gospel that's transforming us today. And it's the same gospel that means that one day we have a hope that he will return and change us, restore us, renew us, fully redeem us, and we get to be with him and be like him forever. It's the same gospel message, that plan of redemption, is all of that okay so when he said that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion that's past present and future we see all those things highlighted and celebrated in the lord's supper okay so the lord's supper is a beautiful time to remember the powerful work ongoing work of the gospel so we talked about this being a section where we talk about worship belong and serve and we got through worship Pretty good, right? (laughs) Pretty good. Um, I am considering trying to do another one at some point where I just maybe go over the stuff that we missed here. There were some good things we just didn't get to, like the more charismatic spiritual gifts, filling of the Holy Spirit. Is there a second filling of the Holy Spirit? Some of this stuff. um, I haven't worked into the schedule yet, but if I do, I will let you know. I will do that in addition to the other stuff that's coming. I think we have two weeks off, and then we come back and we do a four-week salvation study. Does that sound right? Um, And then we just keep on moving. And then there's a last things one coming up in November. I spent all afternoon reading books on last things, making sure we're ready for it. That's going to be a juicy one. Let me pray for us. Juicy in a good way. If probably an inappropriate way to describe it, we'll say juicy in a good way. Uh, Lord, in your goodness, you change us. In your goodness, you have saved us. And in your goodness, you're coming back to redeem us, renew us, and allow us to be like you. Uh, We long for that day. Grow us and change us. Allow us to fall more in love with you each and every day. Uh, raise up a prayer movement in and through our church where we begin pleading with you to change us and to change the city. May you do it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.